welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We have got a very interesting show for you today on remanufacturing. We're really going to be talking about remanufacturing and sustainability. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Lou, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, We've got a couple of items that uh, we'd like to address before the show starts, so no horsing around, and let's get right into it because it's really a great show. Uh, We do a postscript of our last week's uh, show, and uh, we did have the Institute of Supply Management, Brad Holcomb, giving his monthly report on business, and the report this month did show some modest growth uh, with some positive overtones for the third and fourth quarter of this year, uh, with even stronger with even stronger uh, uh, positive points for 2016. Uh, A couple of interesting news items that we've kind of picked up on that I thought I'd uh, share uh, with you all, Uh, one one of which, of course, I think you already know about, and that is that China did devalue their RMB this week, uh, causing uh, quite a ruckus in the uh, currency world seems as though that may have been a great help uh, yesterday for our stock market to jump 240 points. All those uh, dollars and RMB running to safety in the U.S. dollar. I'm not sure if that's a reality, but as long as everyone believes it, that's okay. Um, Arkansas. We don't talk much about Arkansas, but it's kind of interesting that they are planning to shut down their largest coal-fired plant by the year 2028. Why? EPA new rules that they've imposed on that plant and others uh, will cost a billion dollars to clean up that particular plant. So they are shutting it down. It's going to take them 13 years to shut it down. They probably hope something will come up in between that they may not have to shut it down. Japan restarted uh, their number one nuclear plant out of 43. They finally decided that they can't live without nuclear power or can't live with it or maybe can't live without it. Not sure how that works, but nonetheless, they did start it up this week and they've got 42 more to go. Uh, Next along my list is, uh, this is an interesting one and I'm sure not many Americans know about this. The United States and Mexico opened a new railroad bridge connecting the two countries. A hundred years ago was the last one that was built. Uh, It seems as though that they're planning to transport more of that Mexican oil up north and maybe illegals in the passenger compartments. Don't know if they're really going to have a a (laughs) passenger department, but nonetheless, they are planning to be very much involved in the uh, oil and energy uh, uh, business up here. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting, and I don't – I've only saw this one little clip, and I think it's probably a very hot issue and controversial, and that's probably why 
none of the regular media is picking up on this. Um, one notice I'd like to make is that Manufacturing Day is coming up uh, October 2. Uh, it actually starts uh, to kick off that week on September 28th on Monday. And Manufacturing Talk Radio is going to be very much involved with it, with Manufacturing Day and uh, uh, the FMA and the the NAM and the uh, other participants. There are five partner organizations. Uh, we will be involved in it, and we may even be doing a bus tour with a load of uh, tech kids who go to high school and take them into manufacturing plants and let them see that manufacturing plants nowadays is not oil and greasy floors or steel filings on the floors. So on that note, uh, Tim, take it away. Thanks. Thanks, Lou. Let me introduce our two guests today. We have uh, Dr. Nabil Nasser, who is the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs and Director of the Golisano Institute for Sustainability at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Dr. Nasser, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we also have John Disharoon. John is Director of Market Access for Caterpillar Remanufacturing Components and Work Tools, and we're going to have an interesting discussion with these two gentlemen. John, thank you for joining the show. Happy to be with you. Thank you. Uh, John, just to kind of start things off, uh, what is remanufacturing, and you know, what is its role in, in something that we hear of in the circular economy? Well, it's a great way to start this off, uh, Tim. Remanufacturing is actually the highest form of recycling known in the manufacturing world. Uh, in a nutshell, we can take a product at the end of its first useful life, bring it back uh, on an exchange basis to a Caterpillar remanufacturing facility, completely disassemble it, uh, test everything, clean everything, uh, replace worn items either through additive manufacturing or completely new items, build it back up, uh, adding engineering updates that have occurred since the original production of that material, uh, completely test the entire component, uh, assemble it, paint it, and sell it in a like-new quality with the same-as-new warranty uh, to our customers at about half the price of new. So you get the exact same form, fit, and function at a fraction of the new cost on an exchange basis uh, that is going to perform uh, with the same manufacturing specifications as the original product. Uh, but the benefit of that, obviously, is that not only are we saving natural resources uh, and saving uh, new parts in in our manufacturing environment, but the customer is getting like new performance at a fraction of the cost. So it's really win-win for the company, the customers, and the environment. From uh, the from the marketing side, um, what's the perception of the buyer buying a, and I'll use their terms, remade part or a replacement part? Uh, what's their perception about the final product? Well, from I can I can only speak to the experience of our customers. Now we're not we're not a consumer products company. We sell capital goods, Caterpillar, Earth Moving, uh, construction, mining equipment. Uh, sometimes costs a few million dollars a throw. So it's a big investment up front, and our customers actually line up for our remanufactured 
products and components. And they do that for, for really two reasons. One is the performance is the exact same as new, and the second is they're saving literally up to half on the replacement parts for, for Caterpillar equipment. Again, it's on an exchange basis, so they return the end-of-service-life component, and we, we give them or we sell them a remanufactured product. And if they were to buy all those products at the, uh, at the new price and just replace and repair with new, uh, their service and repair costs would double. Dr. Nasser, I want to go to you for a moment. Uh, I'd like you to give our audience just kind of a, uh, a read of what you do with the Rochester Institute of Technology, a, a great institute, and uh, also uh, how you're involved in remanufacturing, if you would, please. Yeah, yeah sure. I, uh, uh, the, uh, the work that we do at RIT actually started uh, – 26 years ago when uh, we looked into the remanufacturing industry and, and, and basically uh, discovered that, that it's, uh, it's an amazing industry that provides significant value, as, as John uh, um, mentioned, to the, to the customers, to the environment, and to the economy as well. And, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of these practices are not really taught in engineering schools and, and there are uh, not a lot of R&D investment was going in this direction was kind of uh, an angle that attracted us to get involved and to, um, to, to contribute in this area. We established a center for remanufacturing and resource recovery at the university, uh, you know, back then. And we continue to work very closely with the industry and the industry council uh, that was formed many years ago uh, to help advance the state of the art of the industry, to also help with the education side about the industry and its impact and contribution to the economy. But we're, we're very involved in the uh, technology development, technology transfer uh, activities uh, related to the industry. And we work with many great companies uh, like Caterpillar, for example, uh, in this area. So let me bring up a sensitive point. Um, is this part of the green philosophy? Let me let me answer that first. I this is John with uh, with Caterpillar. I hesitate to use the term green uh, for really one primary reason. It doesn't really say anything about the product itself. We we can talk about sustainability characteristics, we can talk about extended life cycles, we can talk about facts and data, but but green really is kind of a misnomer and I'm not quite sure what we're trying to convey by using that. Remanufacturing does fit into a circular economy very well. It fits into sustainability exceptionally well and it fits into the life cycle process and the life cycle cost and value of products from design through, we, we say cradle to, to grave, but really it's cradle to cradle because we're rebirthing these products at the end of their first useful life. So if you don't mind, I'd just assume stay away from the term green and talk about the sustainability benefits of remanufacturing. I, I appropriately stand corrected. <laughs> I, I, well, this is, uh, this is uh, Nabil Nasser from RIT. I, I, I personally uh, agree with, with John on this because it, it is far more than just being uh, green. It's really, uh, you know, when you deal with remanufacturing, you're actually 
um, you're actually dealing with, with a lot of attributes, including the economics, including uh, ensuring that the product are in the, the resources that we use to make the product are put back in, in service. Uh, you know, as John said, it's, it's when we remanufacture a product, it's almost like a rebirth of the product. It's brand new. It has the same life cycle, the same performance uh, characteristics and reliability. It's a completely and like new product. Uh, but but I, I mean, if green here means that, that we are more environmentally benign and, and taking into account a lot of the environmental factor, yeah, it is one of the attributes uh, that remanufacturing does meet. Uh, but it is far more than just being green. John, what are the products and components deemed salvageable for remanufacturing? I know these, uh, you're not talking about lawnmowers here. You're talking about big earth movers and some really impressive equipment. Uh, what can be recycled or remanufactured on something as large as that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, that's, a, that's another great question. Caterpillar currently offers more than 7,000 individual part numbers. But if you, if you think of a piece of construction and mining equipment, everything from the complete diesel engine to the final drives, the transmission, the water pump, the oil pump, the oil cooler, the brakes, the uh, electric drive systems, both the electric drive motors and the uh, and the the, uh, the components that drive that from the engine back to the generators, all of the large, expensive, heavy wear items on a piece of construction equipment generally are what we remanufacture. So if you look at the hydraulic systems, it's going to be hydraulic pumps and motors plus the actual hydraulic rods and cylinders themselves. So again, we're not in the consumer products market, but all of the large wear items, the expensive things to repair and replace on a piece of construction and earth-moving equipment are those that we target because those are the ones that wear out through heavy use with our customers, and those are the ones that we want to get back up and running out so that they can make money and offer a remanufactured part for. John, on those very big pieces of equipment, I've always been curious, what do they do with those very big tires? That's a great question. A large mining truck, one tire, and there's generally six per 400-ton truck. So if you look at our largest off-highway truck, uh, those tires may run seventy or eighty thousand dollars a piece new. Uh, so there is a, there is a life of of those tires. In some markets, they're able to revulcanize the tires and, uh, and, and retread them. That's not allowed in a lot of markets. So tires is something that we don't currently remanufacture. We work with the tire manufacturers to build a tire that will give predicted life. Uh, and, and most of that, guys, is maintaining the haul road. It's not the load. It's not the conditions that they're operating in. It's the haul road back and forth from the fill to the dump that wears out the tires. Uh, but that's currently not a product that we're remanufacturing. At the end of the useful life, though, we do work with the tire manufacturers to reclaim the rubber and recycle it. And I, I might want to add here that the, the tire retreading actually is a well-established uh, remanufacturing sector. And especially in the aerospace side, there is uh, – significant work in tire retreading, uh, and many of that is done by the manufacturer of those tires, so you can bring tires back to like new condition also, uh, and they can go through multiple life cycles. And I, I also wanted to add in terms of other products that are remanufacturing, we deal with a lot of automotive equipment uh, components, uh, a lot of aerospace. Uh, aerospace actually is the largest 
commercial product that we uh, that in the remanufacturing area, uh, medical equipment, toner cartridges, but the largest uh, remanufacturer uh, in the U.S. is the military, where we actually remanufacture aircraft, uh, ground vehicles, uh, navy ships. So there's significant uh, remanufacturing that's done uh, by the by the Department of Defense in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Nasser, what about uh, non-renewable resources? What are we doing, or what is uh, Rochester Institute of Technology teaching, instructing in on the non-renewable resources front? Uh, that's that's the, really a terrific question. I think uh, the consumption of non-renewable resources uh, is is significant, and. Um, there, if there is a way for us to reclaim a lot of this material that's non-renewable that we use in, in the making of many many products, uh, then that, that impact is, is, is really reduced. So I think that's part of the sustainable design philosophies uh, that we work on, that we, uh, we try to develop tools and methodology in this area. Uh, the challenge is that uh, in many cases uh, you might not have uh, direct substitution for some material, and that's where the circular economy and, and recycling and or remanufacturing play a big role. So, for example, uh, in remanufacturing, um, there uh, in cases we can use a component uh, for six or seven or even more uh, times during uh, that use phase of that product. So, if we find way to extend the life cycle. Uh, a product that has some of these components, uh, we're basically we're, we're limiting that impact. Uh, but the most important part is really having that take-back system and be able to recycle this material. And remanufacturing is the is the best form that we have seen uh, in taking uh, in having that closed-loop system that allow us to uh, properly recycle a lot of this material. Uh, open question to the two of you. Um, we have taken uh, the show interest into the 3D printing and additive manufacturing world. We've done a couple of shows on it. We've met a lot of people in that market. In the remanufacturing, as it is, uh, let's say, at Caterpillar, roughly what percentage of the remanufactured parts are actually produced via the uh, 3D or additive manufacturing process? Well, I, I will differentiate 3D from additive manufacturing because okay. while it is a form of additive manufacturing, we're, we're still kind of playing around the margins with 3D printing. We're able to produce some parts for test uh, and, and see how they hold up in our metallurgical labs. We're able to produce some older products that are no longer in our in our uh, line manufacturing operations. But the overall additive manufacturing, whether it's you know laser cladding or uh, wire welding or laser welding on worn parts to bring them back to tolerance, uh, that happens on a daily basis. And so it all depends on the condition of the core that we receive in exchange, how much additive manufacturing has to uh, has to be placed into it. We have the original engineering specs because we designed the original part. So we'll know uh, better than anyone else what it's going to take to get that part back to specification. We know the alloys that can be welded upon it that will uh, actually provide improved strength and durability as opposed to chipping off under pressure or 
stress or friction. Uh, so we're, we're very well positioned to use additive manufacturing to bring the part back to its original specification. But that's separate and distinct from 3D, which is actually, in my mind, producing a part from these additive technologies in a box uh, rather than going through the traditional uh, either cast metal process or machining process to get that part. So we're doing some 3D uh, manufacturing right now, but it's not at the production scale. And how about Dr. Nasser at the Rochester Institute of Technology? Do you have a lot going on there with uh, 3D printing and additive manufacturing in your instruction uh, curriculum? Uh, uh, definitely, we have a lot of activities going on in this area in in many many programs uh, at the university and uh, at the Center for Remanufacturing at the university. Uh, we have a number of uh, you know machines that represent all the different technology uh, in this area. And as, as John um, mentioned, you know we the additive processes uh, are in place in remanufacturing operations. Uh, for many years, and, and, and I think a lot of the newer additive processes are the ones that are, or 3D printing, are the ones that are uh, being investigated in terms of its, their potential uh, in the remanufacturing operations. So uh, so we have work at the university, for example, looking at artificial limbs, for example, producing a low-cost, um, you know, uh, you know uh, artificial limbs, for example, uh, for uh, medical application where looking for aerospace applications. So there are a lot of work um, in different areas um, within the university at looking at additive manufacturing or 3D printing. Uh, you know, again, from a, re from a remanufacturing processes, we think it would have uh, some application where you have complex parts, uh, uh, low volume, and, uh, you know, and the, the design details are available. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to be that uh, the silver bullet to address a lot of our needs in the remanufacturing area. John, in terms of these pieces of equipment that are out in the field, and you can hardly drive down a highway, uh, go through a construction zone, and not see a big piece of CAD equipment, uh, large, impressive uh, uh, machinery. Now it's got to come back to a remanufacturing facility. How does it get there? Okay, I, I just want to clarify that, that we actually don't remanufacture the entire piece of equipment. So if you're, if you're traveling down the interstate and you get slowed down by an orange flag and you look off to the side and see a Caterpillar D9 there, we, we do not remanufacture that entire bulldozer or track-type tractor. We would remanufacture the engine, the transmission, the final drive, the oil pump, the water pump, the starter, the alternator, the key components within that. Now, as compared to what our dealers can do, our dealers can take that D9 at the end of its useful life and do a certified rebuild well they'll take the tractor all the way down to its frame incorporate remanufactured parts and components and build that tractor back up to its original specification but that the difference is that's done in a dealer workshop and caterpillar remanufacturing takes place in our factories where we produce the parts and components so that's just a, a clarification for you great i appreciate it thank you great how that happened uh, can you lou yeah, I one point that I'd like to, uh, to clarify, being that I'm I'm the the, the marketing side of the business here, uh, remanufacturing replacement parts. In fact, does it help in your branding of your product and your customer loyalty, uh, capturing them almost captive because of the 
significant uh, cost reduction incentive? It's it's certainly a tool that we use in our in our tool belt, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of why this is successful. Uh, when a when a customer's product uh, needs replacement or repair, they've got a couple of options. They can come back to the cat dealer and they can buy a brand new part. They can go to the aftermarket and buy a competitive, what we call will fit part, that will be something less than the Caterpillar new part price. Uh, that because it doesn't have CAT's original specifications, wasn't manufactured and authorized by, by the corporation. Uh, they can go to a, uh, a kind of a boneyard and, and find a, a, scavenged, a sav- excuse me, scavenged or salvaged used part that will fit and they don't know how long it will last. And what we do with remanufacturing is offer them a factory-authorized replacement part on exchange that will have the exact same factory specifications as new at about half the cost of a new part. And so we're giving them a price point that most of them find very satisfactory that keeps them within the CAT family under warranty for the piece of capital equipment that they purchased and are extremely happy with the process because they they know the dealers, the dealers know them, we understand the circumstances that they operate in. So we're offering a like new product at a price point that is substantially less than new, and between that of uh, not quite sure how much life we're going to get out of a product that may be uh, manufactured by a, by a third party. So it's a good way to keep them in the family, and it's a thriving business. So we're, uh, we're confident that the, uh, that, the, that the ability for us to provide this service to our customers is one that's going to continue to grow. Do they get a full warranty on the remanufactured part? They sure do. It's the exact same warranty as our new parts. Uh, In fact, uh, it's the same warranty statement. We don't differentiate at all. If you buy a Caterpillar part from us, regardless if it's brand new or remanufactured, we'll stand behind it uh, for the same terms and conditions on both. Charlie, I want to ask for just a moment here in this world of the Internet of Things, of the industrial Internet of Things, where we're attaching sensors to everything under the sun and getting all kinds of data back to some kind of computer to analyze it. Are there any components on CAT equipment that have sensors on them to tell some central source that it's reached its useful life? Absolutely. And this is something that, you know, that it's uh, it's kind of a, a buzzword now and a lot going on in the industry, and we've we've put some additional resources into it as well. But historically, uh, a dealer knows the condition of the equipment that's being operated on because he's out there on the job site with a customer. We do uh, what we call scheduled oil sampling, which would tell us if there are any bits of metal in the oil filter or the drain pan that would let us know there were uh, premature wear or indicative wear uh, within the engine components or the oiling lubrication system. And now we're able to, through some of the sensor technology, have the machines talk to each other so we know kind of the operating temperature, whether or not uh, one cylinder is working harder than another one, uh, whether or not the heat is not being dissipated, how much wear and impact is actually happening when they hit the face of the mine or hit the face of the rock pile. Uh, to load the truck. We've got sensors on the truck that will tell the loader if he's overloading it, red, yellow, green light, you know, how much more he can put in the bed. So, that, And we're able to take that data and analyze it and help with a predictive repair before failure strategy for our customers. And again, if you're operating a fleet of million-dollar machines, uh, this could be the difference between whether or not you uh, you make a dollar that month is if you're able to pull that machine out for preventive maintenance as opposed to failure and replace. And John, when you're working with uh, 
remanufacturing. Is there ever an opportunity to new and improve something that's going to go into an existing piece of equipment that's in the field so that when that new and improved goes out, uh, there's more something that you get out of the machinery? That's the beauty of remanufacturing. We are able to apply the technological updates that have occurred to that product since it originally went in the field. So we take the we take the data analysis and the and the premature wear data um, from the field uh, when the product originally goes out, and the engineers make updates to designs, and we're able to incorporate those engineering updates into the remanufactured product. And there's a handful of uh, cases out there, actually more and more. As our as our ability to do this uh, continues to grow, where customers will actually pre, uh, prefer the remanufactured product because they know that we were able to fix that glitch or that early air uh, early wear item in the original product. So one of the benefits of remanufacturing is that you're getting same as new, if not better, because of the engineering updates that we're able to provide to that remanufactured product. Well, it's exciting stuff. Uh, I, I love to hear that uh, those kind of technology updates can can be uh, you know implanted right into an existing piece of equipment. That's a brilliant piece of engineering. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we are going to be back with uh, Dr. Nabil Nasser uh, from the Rochester Institute of Technology and Don uh, John Disharoon from Caterpillar Remanufacturing in just a moment after this commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it. And it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778. Or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com. Or 877-877-6778. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is Tim Grady 
host of Manufacturing Talk Radio, the voice of manufacturing globally. I'm here with my co-host and the sponsor of Manufacturing Talk Radio, which makes the show possible, Lou Weiss from All Metals and Forge Group. Um, Lou, we're having a very interesting conversation with John Disharoon, Director of Market Access for Caterpillar's Cat Reman or, or Caterpillar Remanufacturing, and Dr. Nabil Nasser, who's uh, with the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, anything in particular that strikes you in that first half hour that you want to uh, pass on to our guests or ask them a particular question? Uh, yeah. The, uh, what's going on at uh, Caterpillar and other large companies doing uh, the remanufacturing is really a, a terrific uh, enterprise. Uh, we have a lot of our uh, customers at All Metals and Forge Group. They're, uh, they're, well, we do sell Caterpillar as well. Uh, that's not why you're here. Uh, John, but uh, we have uh, sold the large companies, but the smaller companies, the medium-sized companies, in their effort to accomplish what Caterpillar has done, there's got to be a huge investment, unless I'm wrong, and uh, I'd like to address to that. Uh, What does it take to get a medium-sized company to be able to analyze and look at their end product and say, okay, what parts here wear out and that we could wind up having a remanufactured part to be the leader in their field? Uh, What does it take? Uh, Re-engineering the part itself? uh, Redesigning the part? Um, Give us some insight into that. Sure, and that's a great question. It, it actually requires a little bit of everything. It all starts with engineering. But I, I'll, I'll tell you, there's an awful lot of small and medium-sized manufacturing companies that do this today. In fact, Caterpillar supplier networks are those that provide us. Uh, we purchase finished goods from them. They, we design them. We give them the engineering specs, and then they manufacture them for us because we can't we can't manufacture every bit on a machine. Uh, but we work with those suppliers on the engineering specifications that we give them, and sometimes they'll come back and say, hey, John, we can make this uh, a little bit less costly if you take this tolerance down or we use this material. And we said, no, 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 we're, we're designing for remanufacturing here. We want that product to last 15,000 hours. And they say, well, everybody else only makes them at last eight, but we know we're going to get a second life out of it. And so... You know, we obviously will have these conversations on cost reductions, but we're looking at the life cycle value of the product. And many of our suppliers are engaged in those conversations today. And as we've, uh, as we've, you know, both expanded and contracted in our supply network, depending on the market that we're serving uh, in any given fiscal year, we find that more and more suppliers are using this technology to build parts for other folks that can also put them into a life cycle assessment. Again, some manufacturers only want to produce the lowest cost product to get it on the market and satisfy an initial need, but we're not a disposable piece of equipment. We want that to have enduring quality and last. And so we we work with our suppliers to uh, ensure that those engineering specifications are met and manufactured too. Dr. Nasser, uh, I know that you have worked with the New Jersey, I'm sorry, the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, and you're developing relationships with businesses. Are those businesses, you know, local to Rochester, or are they within the state of New York, or are they all across the country? They're all across the country. So the the remanufacturing industry has uh, 12 uh, sectors. Uh, So we're we're very diverse. Uh, industry with with many sectors. Some are business to business, and some are business to consumers. So there, 
there's definitely a lot of diversity in the remanufacturing industry. And we also work with remanufacturing companies um, globally as well. So there are significant uh, effort going on to uh, develop a strong remanufacturing sector in, in South Korea and Singapore and China and many countries that are actually trying to look at remanufacturing as, as a way to actually reduce their waste stream to ensure uh, that they have the economic value and, and also from the sustainability and the circular economy angle, uh, sustainability is very attractive. So there are many countries are trying to build their expertise in this area and build, develop their infrastructure. So we are a uh, more of a technology uh, development technology organization that work uh, with, with, uh, with all the different sectors of the remanufacturing industry. Most of our work uh, is domestic, though, within the U.S. So we have uh, remanufacturing companies throughout uh, all of our 50 states. And when you're sitting down with them, are they at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, or are you actually going out in the field and sitting down with uh, corporate engineers to help them in their remanufacturing efforts? We have a uh, we have a resource, and we have you know laboratories. We have two facilities, uh, so uh, you know the the hardcore engineering and technology work uh, typically is done at our facilities, but. Uh, we also have something called the Remanufacturing Industries Council, and Caterpillar is, is one of the founders and leaders in this council, uh, for example. So we we have uh, events uh, throughout the country that we uh, we go from one city to another, and we get hosted by one of our companies. Uh, we visit uh, many of the remanufacturing companies at their site. And uh, we coll- when we collaborate with, uh, with, with companies addressing some of their challenges, uh, we typically start by, by going to their facilities first. And what, Dr. Nasser, is the big challenge right now in remanufacturing for most companies? I think, you know, we have, we have significant challenges. The, what we call the intensity of remanufacturing. There, there are companies, for example, like Caterpillar, and 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 in the medical equipment GE and uh, and and other market leaders uh, who are doing very well in their sector, but uh, the intensity in terms of the volume of remanufacturing that happened in many other sector isn't high enough, and we have significant opportunity to increase that because uh, remanufacturing would add significant economic and environmental value. Uh, but there, there are many barriers, and uh, some of the barriers that we have, for example, uh, that many of our companies face is some of the market access uh, issues, some barriers related to exporting uh, remanufactured uh, products. Uh, many countries have rules and regulations that, that actually make it almost impossible or block the importation of remanufactured products. Obviously, with companies that, that are global these days, uh, when you have a challenge like that, that tend to impact what you do. Uh, we have we have other issues related to infrastructure, collecting the the old product. Uh, we have um, we have a lot of issues with uh, with policies that really hinder the growth of the remanufacturing sector, and especially coming from other countries like in the uh, the Asia Pacific area, for example. And what kind of policies are restricting you? Well, I think, uh, you know, John can, can speak to this issue as well because he lives it. I mean, there are uh, countries, for example, that would, have, uh, that would have unfavorable 
rules related to importation of remanufactured product or, or banning the importation of remanufactured product or the movement of the core, which is the end-of-life product, the product that actually going back to the remanufacturing facility. Uh, so all of that represents barriers that actually makes it difficult uh, for companies to actually uh, remanufacture a product uh, because the market access is limited. So, John, uh, with a, for instance, a drive system, is that system actually coming back to your facility to be remanufactured? It absolutely is, and and uh, Dr. Nasser made a terrific port, point there that I'd like to highlight. If you go back to the to the kind of World Trade Organization, the, the the global trade flows that we've got now right now, it originally was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT, and that involved in that evolved into the WTO or the World Trade Organization. Under the GATT and the WTO, they classify goods in two categories: new and used. There's no subcategory of remanufacturing. We attempt to get remanufactured goods considered the same as new. They come with a factory warranty. It is, in fact, the first time that those components have ever come together, so they are newly manufactured. But they do utilize core additive manufacturing, some new, and some some additional technology. So they're not brand spanking new because our raw materials oftentimes are taken from the core, but they're closer to new than they are used. So many countries, like the United States and and the European Union, have the free flow of cores and remanufactured goods, no problem. They consider them the same as new. In fact, there's about 13 countries that have signed the Pathfinder initiative under the the APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. But there are many other developing, primarily developing countries, that are loathe to import used goods. They don't want to be the dumping ground for Western cars, electronics, radios, stereos, old bulldozers, old, you know, whatever, lawnmowers. And so they've got very restrictive importation policies that say you cannot bring in non-functioning mechanical goods, which for us would be a core, right, a non-functioning diesel engine that we took out of a out of a mining truck, and they limit importation to only new goods and not used. So what we're doing is working with our multilateral trading agencies and trading countries to call out remanufacture the same as new so that our customers in any market in the world can benefit from the environmental, the societal, and the business benefits of remanufactured goods. Uh, but we're fighting this battle of the importation and the dumping grounds of, you know, non-usable Western goods. Think of all the cars in the U.S. auto industry that nobody drives anymore that they want to take down to the border of Mexico and sell because the Mexicans will drive them. That's kind of the theory that we're fighting against around the world. When we get an opportunity to show them the facts and data, uh, show them the warranty, show them that the customers actually demand these products, then we're having significant success. But there are very large markets in the world today where we cannot sell. So to answer your question, yes, we bring that drivetrain back to one of our factories where it's inspected, totally disassembled. And, again, this is different than new manufacturing because every single part is inspected before it's remanufactured into a new product. And when you walk into our new factories today, we do not inspect 100% of the parts. We do quality control checks, but remanufacturing inspects every single piece part going back into that component. Uh, just as a point, uh, is Mexico and uh, Canada, while I'm at it, uh, one of those countries that have signed on for remanufacturing 
as new? Both of them. Both of them have signed on to the APEC Pathfinder. We find that the NAFTA countries, you know, kind of North America here, are ahead of the game. Uh, if if I look at, uh, at kind of the global, I'll, I'll miss a few of them, but uh, the U.S., uh, Japan, Chile, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, Korea, Singapore, Australia, uh, Dr. Nasser, I'm going to forget a few, Papua New Guinea, um, you know, there's about a dozen we believe Malaysia will sign on at the APEC meeting this fall. There's a there's about a, a dozen or 13 countries that have signed on to this Pathfinder. We call it Annex D, which simply says we will not discriminate against truly remanufactured goods versus new. And again, we're not asking for special provisions. We're not asking for tax abatements. We're not asking for... Uh, you know, tax rebates or tariff reductions. We're just saying treat us like new. Give us a level playing field, and those that have truly are offering remanufactured goods should have market access to our customers in those countries. I did notice that you did not mention Brazil. Is Brazil not on that list? Uh, we're working with the Brazilians. It's a, it's a very, very important market to us. Brazil is a is a unique market. I mean, they're they're essentially closed unless you manufacture there. We've had a manufacturing history in Brazil that goes back uh, nearly nearly 45 years. We have some market access with our remanufactured products, but we work that country every day of the year to gain more access. It's just a tough place to do business sometimes. Not easy. We've been uh, doing that ourselves now for the last two years, and it's uh, these last two years have probably been maybe one of the worst. Yeah, they're trying to protect their economy and make sure everything that happens in Brazil, if you sell a part in Brazil, they'd like it manufactured there. Obviously, on economies of scale, you can't manufacture in every country or you simply wouldn't have a business model. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, our customers down there are, are demanding more and more reman products. And there's a lot of hoops we have to go through, and we're working very closely with our businesses in Brazil and the government to try to expedite this process. I think they need to reman their government. <laughs> well, I, I, I would just like to add one thing that, that there are products that are remanufactured in Brazil so I think a lot of the barriers that we see in some countries is as John said it really trying to protect their, their domestic industry you know not sure. necessarily that they, they do have a problem with the remanufactured product it, it's for other reasons they have some of those barriers and, and if I can, let me just expound on that comment. We actually do some limited remanufacturing in Brazil as well. So Brazil doesn't have a problem with reman. They have a problem with importing reman. Same thing with Turkey. Turkey incents companies to come and set up remanufacturing facilities in their country, yet they don't allow the importation of reman. Indonesia incents companies to come and and set up remanufacturing operations in their country, yet they don't allow the importation of reman. And that's kind of a phrase that keeps getting repeated as you go around the world. And the desire for countries to stimulate foreign direct investment supersedes trade rules because they're trying to drive economies and growth of GDP, which is very difficult to do when so many economies of the world are down. So we have two choices. We can play the waiting game and, and not satisfy our customers and l potentially lose them to competitors, or we can you know, strategically try to locate facilities where we might be able to get some volume to satisfy the local market. But that clearly is not our choice because we like to play in a rules-based trade game that allows us free importation and exportation of goods around the world regardless of where they're manufactured. John, I get the impression that unless I take my bulldozer and I run it off a cliff by accident that tumbles down 3,000 feet and destroys itself, that a caterpillar piece of equipment is going to last 
for the next 200 years. Is that about right? Well, we've been in business for more than 90 years, and I can tell you that we have. Uh, there's more than 4 million pieces of Caterpillar equipment out there operating uh, in the world right now today. We still sell service parts for products that were manufactured in the 1920s, and these are not all in historical museums. We've got, uh, we've got D7s and D6s from World War II uh, that are still in productive use on, on farms and construction companies around the world. With proper maintenance, all mechanical things will eventually fail, but with proper maintenance and proper service, Caterpillar can, can just about guarantee, our, our promise to our customers is that you will have the lowest owning and operating cost for that equipment through its useful life. Now, obviously, uh, if you're in a heavy mining application or road building application, uh, there are some wear items where eventually uh, we're not going to be able to remanufacture them. But we will still give you some sort of core credit to exchange that and put a, uh, a remanufactured product in there. Every mechanical thing has, a, uh, has an end of a useful life, but we engineer and our quality standards ensure that most of our products have three to four operating lives from the time they lose the, the blueprint uh, before they go into first production. That's our goal, to be the best value equipment on the market. John, what's in this uh, uh, growth of remanufacturing has been your biggest challenge other than you know, the one we just spoke about? What other big challenge or two are, have you faced or are you facing you know, the big nuts you need to crack? You know, uh, my job exists because we don't have a free flow of, of cores and products uh, around the world like uh, like we do. My, my goal is over the next three or four years to eliminate my job and ensure that we have full market access. That's the biggest problem that we face today with remanufactured products. It's not, uh, it's not a quality perception because our, our customers, and again, we're not a consumer products company. We have a limited number of customers around the world, but they subscribe to our business model. They buy our parts. They exchange change our parts, as is witnessed by when we sell a remanufactured part, guys, we get 95% of our core back. So 95% of the time when somebody buys a remanufactured product from CAT, they're exchanging that core to us, uh, which which is kind of prima facie evidence that they're buying into the program. Uh, I might add the only time we don't get a core back is usually when the dealer has its own exchange program going and he wants to keep an engine or a transmission on hand uh, to supplement a fleet that he might be supporting, or there was a catastrophic failure and the dealer knows he's not going to get any core credit, uh, and therefore he uh, he recycles the material on site and doesn't pay shipping to get it back to us to recycle. Um, but But really, market access is the biggest impediment to our growth uh, at Caterpillar. We're introducing new remanufactured part numbers every month. We get the analytical data back from the field on, on where the customers want a reman part where we don't currently offer one. Our engineers work with uh, the design engineers on the new side to design the new parts to have remanufacturability built into them. Uh, we think we're doing all the, all the right things, but it's, uh, it's government policies that are restricting our our uh, our growth any further than what we've got right now. That and the fact that we're in kind of a down market right now, a down cycle uh, for all earth moving and construction equipment just because there's not a lot of uh, global infrastructure happening right now. Uh, and Dr. Nasser, uh, I'm sorry, Lou, uh, you had a thought. Uh, yeah, I was looking to hit on a particular point. Uh, without the remanufacturing uh, component and the uh, socially responsible practices associated, can any uh, enterprise be considered sustainable? 
You know, that'd, that'd be a good one for the good doctor to contemplate. He's uh, <laughs> he's not only our academic expert, but he's the world expert on on sustainability and manufacturing. I will say that from our from our industry standpoint, uh, it's not good enough to design a product, a disposable product when the world's natural resources are uh, are decreasing i mean we only have one planet to work with we've uh, we've got a couple thousand years of uh, of people using those resources and the data tells us that if we continue to use them in the same quantities that we've used them over the past uh, even couple of hundred years uh, that we're going to run out of them so I, I i think in order to be a sustainable company you've got to have an eye on the environmental impact as well as the social benefits and the and the business impacts that you can have remanufacturing hits that sweet spot for caterpillar in fact sustainability is one of our is one of our corporate values and uh, I, I think it'd be difficult to serve the industries that we serve if you're not a sustainable company and i don't know how you can be sustainable if you don't have uh, if you don't have engineered multiple life cycles into your product I, I, I would like to yeah, go into sustainability a little bit for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I I totally agree with with John that that, that uh, remanufacturing is a critical element of what we we in order to get to sustainability. I think that closed loop system or the circular model where we bring the product back to the manufacturer, where we properly recycle material that cannot be reused where we can put components that actually meet the same specification as new back into service, uh, that is essential and uh, that is uh, more of a prerequisite to actually move into that sustainability model. But but the, the challenge I think we have in terms of calling a company sustainable, uh, a company on its own really uh, have many parts that be in their hands, but, but it's really a larger issue. So, for example, uh, if I'm in a part of the world where there is no infrastructure for product collection, there is n- no uh, support for recycling or something like that, I think it would be very difficult for companies can't do that on their own. So it's a, it's a broader uh, issue. It's a system issue. I think also the science of sustainability uh, is advanced in, in some area, but many other areas we don't understand the, the how critical materials uh, play a role and how non-renewable materials, for example, how we can manage uh, that uh, effectively. So I think, you know, companies can strive to be more environmentally benign. Uh, companies can, can make progress toward greener design. Uh, but I think in terms of becoming a sustainable society and and we have sustainable companies, I think uh, there's a lot more work need to be done at, at, the, at the system level uh, just to make sure that we understand the impact of what we do on the environment, on society. And I think there is, uh, you know, a lot of work need to be done in, in this area. That's a great point, Nabil. I think we can all strive to be more sustainable, but until we uh, perfect a perpetual motion machine or perpetual manufacturing machine, no one will ever be truly sustainable. Exactly. Right. And I, I also wanted to add something about uh, what, what John said about their own product in, in the fact uh, that you are bringing the product back, the fact that you're lowering the total cost of ownership for the the user of those this equipment, I think that is significant. Uh, but you got to realize also that there is additional significant value for the work that Caterpillar is doing.
marketplace. Uh, when you bring this equipment back for remanufacturing cycle, if there is a, a better uh, electronic modules that can be uh, put into this machines, for example, uh, they do that. So, uh, you know, so there are many, many components or many subsystems, modules, uh, that advance at a higher rate than the entire system. So basically, uh, the consumer also is getting significant value uh, by actually getting this remanufactured product uh, with all the technology advancements and also if there is anything that was discovered uh, that, 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 that results in lowering the life cycle of that component, for example, in the remanufacturing cycle that's dealt with to bring it back to the desired specification. Uh, we only have a few uh, more moments. We only have a few more moments before the end of the show, and for the sake of our listeners, uh, if they would like to reach out to uh, either one of you, if you could each give us your uh, URL address for your website and or uh, an email address, if you wish, uh, so that our our, our clients can, uh, listeners can uh, get in touch with you directly. Sure, for Caterpillar, if uh, if you'd like further information, Caterpillar.com, Caterpillar.com, uh, just look under sustainability or search for remanufacturing or go to YouTube under Cat Reman, and you'll see a couple of videos there. If you have any uh, individual questions for me, my email address is jtd at cat.com. And my email address is uh, Nasser, N as in Nancy, A as in Adam, S-R, at rit.edu. And the website oh. is, uh, is www.rit.edu slash G-I-S. Well, those are easy uh, ones to remember for our listeners. I want to thank Dr. Nasser for joining us uh, on the show today. Thank you for being with us on the view. Thank you. And, John, we certainly appreciate your comments uh, on Manufacturing Talk Radio today. Uh, very insightful, and we're fascinated by the things that Caterpillar has been doing. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, gentlemen, and I enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you as well. Uh, Lou, what's going on next week with Manufacturing Talk Radio? What do we got cooking? Uh, next week. Um, you've got me on the spot here. Uh-oh. <laughs> next, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Where's Sharon when you need her? Usually we're uh, we're uh, have a note that gets slipped to us uh, about next week's show, but let me take a quick look. It looks like we're talking about the skills gap in the workforce Uh, next week. This is is a huge issue that's out there. I guess the numbers that we're seeing is that 2.7 million uh, baby boomers are going to retire. Another 700,000 jobs will be created through economic growth. That gives us about 3.4 million jobs that need to be filled. And they expect to fill about 1.4 to 1.7 million of them, leaving a gap of uh, 2 million or a little less. We're not quite sure how to fill it yet. So what did you ask me for? You had all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) You're usually the one that handles that. You get that from uh, the staff and and I, I didn't get the notes, so I, I, I got that. Listen, have a have a good week, and uh, gentlemen, again, thank you for being on the show, and uh, we look forward to updates in the future. And that wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast 
each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.